Uh, let's just let's bow in prayer again. We need the Lord's uh, help. Father, we do, we do need your help. We are very needy. We're poor and needy. We pray that you would come and that you'd meet us in this time. Um, we're grateful that it is your spirit who gives life. And the flesh is no help at all. And so, Father, we pray that you would be pleased to pour out your spirit upon us as your word is preached. Pray that the words would be faithful and true according to your intent in revealing them, that you would hold our minds understanding, that you would kindle our hearts' affections, and that you would strengthen our will's ambition to honor Christ in the entirety of our lives. We cannot do that ourselves, and so we look to you to make it so. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I mentioned in the pastoral prayer a few minutes ago the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe versus Wade, and that event from a couple of weeks ago, as well as uh, the recently concluded Pride Month, um, have been reminders to me, at least. I don't know if you've been thinking this. They've been reminders to me. Uh, of our identity, our status as holy exiles in the world. And as I have been thinking about that and processing that in my own heart, I have seen, uh, to my dismay, a good bit of anger about it. And I think anger rooted in arrogance, thinking of myself wrongly as superior to those who are so committed to the destruction of human life or the disordering of God's good designs for gender and sexuality. I don't know if you can relate to that, but uh, in what some have called an, out, an age of outrage, uh, I think it is easy to mistake this anger, this noise about how bad things are for holiness. Uh, the louder a person cries, the more prophetic his or her voice sounds, the more faithful he or she appears to the cause of holiness. Well, I do believe that there is a category in Scripture called righteous anger. I believe that's a thing. I do commend uh, one's zeal for God and zeal for holiness. But I think, as I've been just processing my own heart attitude over the past few weeks, a more reliable measure of holiness than zeal or emotional fervor or, or cultural discernment is what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, as we progress in holiness... Our spiritual fruit is meant to ripen. And in these uh, confusing and chaotic days in which we live, holiness-minded Christians, I would commend, ought to be focused on exuding the beauty of love and joy and peace 
and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. How do we do that? As, as the spirit-filled bride of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we develop this kind of fruit when our social media-driven culture lends itself to knee-jerk reactions instead of thoughtful self-control? To self-centered lust instead of self-giving love? To cynicism instead of joy? to anxiety instead of peace, or frustration instead of patience, or sarcasm instead of kindness, virtue signaling instead of sincere goodness, viral fame and retweets instead of lifelong faithfulness. Well, I believe this is where the book of Proverbs can be especially helpful to us. To go deeper in holiness could also be described as going higher in wisdom. As an American pastor and hymnist named Charles Price Jones understood, deeper, deeper in the love of Jesus, daily let me go. Higher, higher in the school of wisdom, more grace to know. And I think that little phrase there, that, that verse from the hymn summarizes my aspiration for the study that we're going, Lord willing, to engage in in July and August as we go to the book of Proverbs and look at the book of Proverbs to see what we can learn about the fruit of the Spirit from it. This is a little bit of a weird series. I'm kind of freaked out about it. I've been freaked out this week. The elders can tell you about that. I think it will be good. I'm not sure. (laughs) We'll get through it. I, I, I'm not, I'm preaching on, the, I want to look at the book of Proverbs, but I want to take the fruit of the Spirit that Paul commends in Galatians as the lens by which we would understand the wisdom of God revealed in the book of Proverbs. And so for the next nine weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be examining these fruits and again, particularly focusing our study on what Proverbs teaches us. And it is my earnest prayer that as we would study God's word together, we might grow in that holiness that is described and characterized and depicted in the fruit of the Spirit, that we would be filled, as Paul prayed for the Colossians, that we would be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And I hope you will join me in praying to that end. So we begin this morning with love, which is first on Paul's list in the fruit of the Spirit. I don't think it's an accident that it is first on the list. We know that Jesus himself had said in John chapter 13, we refer to it often in our study of John's gospel, that the whole world would know that we are Christ's disciples by the way that we love one another. Uh, We just read, we heard Steve read it to us from Matthew 22, where Jesus taught that love for God... And love for our neighbor is the heart and the essence of God's will for mankind. And Proverbs has a lot to say about love. A lot more than I can say this morning. 
and we want to survey what the whole book teaches us about love. But we're going to start with Proverbs 15, 17. If you've got one of these cards, if you don't have one of these cards, I would commend it to you. It's, they're in the back in the foyer, the sermon schedule. It's going to have one proverb attached to it. But understand as you're preparing for the service, the point is not just to look at the one verse, but that verse is kind of a springboard to get us into the whole book of Proverbs. And so I don't know if you've been reading it or meditating upon this one verse this week. Proverbs 15, 17 tells us better is a dinner of herbs. Some translations put vegetables there. Better is a dinner of vegetables or herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Now, I'm not exactly, I don't know if it was a real disdain for vegetables that led me to put that particular verse on the card for you. There's many other verses about love. But I do think it teaches us. I think this proverb teaches us something about the value or worth of love. I think what we learn from this one verse is that love is a treasure that surpasses the world's finest pleasures. Because we like some food, don't we? We, we kind of have some food issues as a culture. It's a little strange. I don't mean to offend some of you. Uh, but it's a little strange to me. This is not a sin by any means. But it's strange that, that there are TV networks. And if some of you just watch these networks and you're just watching people prepare food. That strikes me as weird. I like food, don't get me wrong, but that seems weird to me. We have, some of us have tried diet after diet. We have made resolutions. We've been convicted, perhaps, of our gluttony. We know that we uh, should stop eating certain things, and yet we have had a dreadful time doing it. Kids, I actually am willing for a little bit of participation here for just a moment. Kids, do you have a favorite food? Just you, this is kids, an opportunity for you to just yell in the middle of the service. Do you have a favorite food? Bacon. Bacon, I have on the table. <laughs> Anyone else want to throw out a favorite food? Pizza. Pizza. I knew that about you, Jace Lascure. <laughs> okay, the, the kids are quiet. I'm, I, you know, I don't think there's a kid in the room, and this is regardless of age. I don't think there's a kid in the room saying, you know, my favorite food is broccoli. I don't mean, I like broccoli. Broccoli's decent. That's not my favorite food. Put Brussels sprouts in there, whatever. But here's Solomon. Solomon is the one who authored, and I'll maybe say more about the history, the origin of, of Proverbs next Sunday, but uh, we know from Proverbs 10.1 that Solomon authored these particular Proverbs, that we are, at least there's one that I'm looking at here. He knew a little something about exquisite cuisine. He was a very wealthy man. He had Lots of delicious foods at his disposal. But Solomon says it's better to have a dinner of, of, of herbs, of vegetables, where love is, than to have the most delicious, than to have pizza and bacon, or bacon on your pizza, which some of you like, right? To have all the best foods with hatred. How valuable must love be then? That's really all I want to show you from that one verse. Love is a treasure that surpasses all the world's pleasures. 
There is a hospitality application there, and I'm going to say it now, which I wasn't planning to, but you, you, you can do hospitality in a really simple way. PB and J will work. Okay? I understand. Well, that's not a vegetable. I understand, but you, you know what I mean. You do not have to be an amazing chef or put together a, an amazing meal to do hospitality. The quality of the fellowship is far more important than the quality of the fare. Now, that's just a side point. What I really want to do now is, is to consider, granted that foundational statement, that uh, love is greater than all the treasures of this world, I want us to think about how Proverbs instructs us to think about and walk in wise, holy love. And I will try to summarize what I learned this week in four observations. First observation, and I will be brief on this, but I think it's worth saying, uh, at least making mention of. There are perverted loves. There are perverted loves. There is such a thing as a wrong misdirected, distorted love. And I do say that I'm not trying to be a culture warrior, but I, I am saying that because we're inundated. The air we are increasingly breathing is love is love. And it's just said love is love becomes this conversation stopper, you know, on any matter of ethics and morality. Love is love. How could you argue with love? God's word says there are certain loves that are wrong. God's word commands and forbids certain loves. So you can't just say, because it's love, therefore it's virtuous. Uh, in Proverbs chapter 7, Solomon warns his son of the forbidden woman or the adulteress. And this is sobering because we understand, those of you that know the storyline of the Bible, how Solomon fell because of foreign women. But he writes to his son, come, he, he, he puts words in the adulteress, and the adulteress speaks like this, come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, with much seductive speech. She persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And this is not just for the LGBTQ community, beloved. Let us all take heed to our own souls in terms of ways we might be deviant or might go astray online or with our physical bodies. Here's something calling itself love, and God's word says its end is destruction. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Proverbs 21.17 says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. Proverbs 20.13 says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. We know sleep is a good gift, but there's a way of loving. This is the idea of the sluggard, the lazy person who loves sleep. That love is forbidden. That love is warned against. Sluggards love sleep. Drunkards love alcohol. Uh, the greedy love money, but they cannot just claim, well, love is love. 
if you love something that God forbids, if you love something that God even says he hates, there will not be ultimate final good that's going to come from that love. And the book of Proverbs does guide us in that way. There's more that could be said there. I want to go on to talk more positively about the love that is commended to us. If you were to have that conversation that I just said, if you were to have that conversation with just the average, typical, secular person, they would maybe say something to the effect of like, who, who says who? Who is it that gets to be the arbiter of what loves are good and what loves are bad? Who has the right or the authority to forbid or command loves? And that leads us to a second observation in Proverbs, and that is the primary love. The primary love that Proverbs holds out for God's people is that of wisdom. We're to love. Love is a treasure that surpasses all the world's pleasure when the primary object of our love is wisdom. And if you're thinking, shouldn't that be God, Larry? I like the way you think. Keep listening. But listen to Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Oh, love wisdom. Uh, chapter 8. Uh, wisdom actually speaks for herself. In, it's a literary device called personification, where wisdom actually begins to speak as a woman commending herself to the readers. We know, in view of the entirety of the Bible, that Christ, that our Lord Jesus, is the wisdom of God, and so we can actually hear something of Jesus' voice speaking to us in Proverbs chapter 8. I'm not saying that the woman in chapter 8 is Jesus, but I'm saying we can glean a little something about Jesus' posture in hearing the words of wisdom. Wisdom says in Proverbs 8, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit, the fruit of wisdom, is better than gold, even fine gold. And my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. Now, when I say wisdom is to be our primary love, I have this connection that Proverbs 8 made between the wisdom and the fear of the Lord in mind. The essence of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's what we're told in chapter 1, verse 7. The very introduction of Proverbs uh, concludes, the introduction concludes with Proverbs 1, 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the whole book of Proverbs exists to commend 
Not just wisdom as an abstract principle, but the fear of the Lord, the fear of Yahweh. The name Yahweh, right, in the Bible, capitalized L-O-R-D, capitals, it's mentioned 85 times in the book of Proverbs. We are to lovingly pursue wisdom as the chief aim and ambition of our hearts, knowing that wisdom is summed up in the fear of Yahweh. He is the creator and ruler and sovereign of all. We know Yahweh to be the maker of heaven and earth. He is the ruler over every principality and power. He is the creator of the stars and the planets and the galaxies, bringing out all their hosts by number and calling them all by name. He is the one before whom nations are like a drop from a bucket, accounted as dust on the scales. He's the one who sits above the circles of the earth. Inhabitants are, are like grasshoppers before him. He brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness. There is none like Yahweh. There's none like the Lord. Uh, none comparable to him. He is majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wondrous things. And he says, fear me, love me. This is better than anything else you could love or trust. I mean, the Proverbs 15, 16, right above the verse that I started out with, it says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Oh, the nation of Israel had come to know this God by his covenant name, Yahweh, not just by his great power exercise or his rule over the creation, but by the steadfast love and faithfulness that Yahweh had shown to his people in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And so you are, you are probably familiar with those wonderful words in Exodus 34 repeated so often throughout the Psalms. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. That revelation of Yahweh's name and glory came in Exodus 34. And at that point in the story, the people of Israel had denied and opposed and rebelled against him continually murmuring about food. Where are they going to get food? After he had already rained, literally rained down bread from heaven upon them, and they're murmuring in the wilderness about where they're going to get food. Wanting actually to go back to Egypt after he parted the Red Sea for them to take them out of Egypt. Just a couple chapters before, they had created a golden calf and were bowing down and worshiping a calf when he had commanded them to have no other gods before him. And yet here he is in spite of that flagrant rebellion, in spite of that continually obstinate heart of his people, he's holding himself out as the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
when the apple of his eye stood as his opposers, when the crown and pinnacle of his creation were revolting against their maker and redeemer in man's unrighteousness and ungodliness and wickedness, God reveals himself as a mighty, steadfast lover, a deliverer of his people. This is not how we act when we are offended, when we are disrespected. When we are dishonored, our reflex is not to bless and to do good, but that's how Yahweh, that's who he is. How are you all? I just haven't done this in a while. It's hard to, hard to get a gauge on you. That was the people of Israel. But we don't stand as detached observers of all that mercy and grace, do we? Proverbs 29, 20, verse 9, puts it this way. Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. The obvious implied answer to that proverb is nobody. Very consistent with what the Apostle Paul taught about humankind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, we are deserving of this God's judgment. It's not just the people of Israel who look so ugly in those scenes in the book of Exodus. We are deserving. Everyone who is arrogant in heart, Proverbs 16, 5, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. You seen any arrogance in your heart? Ever. In my studies this week, I came across a quote from an Assyrian king from around 900 BC. I don't know exactly how to say his name. Adad-Nirari II. He wrote in his records, I am royal, I am lordly, I am mighty, I am honored, I am exalted, I am glorified, I am powerful, I am all-powerful, I am brilliant, I am lion-brave, I am manly, I am supreme, I am noble. I don't think he had many friends. <laughs> but you know, I thought about that, and I, none of us here would be so brazen as to put words like that, out, have them come out of our mouths. But has not that our posture? Has that not been our posture? Paul says to those who, uh, uh, Romans chapter 2, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. And yet, while his people were pursuing their own sinful pleasure, while they were counting themselves as the immovable ones, the center around which the living God who created everything must them orbit around themselves, while we were pursuing our sinful pleasure, God was planning a saving pardon. While we were saying, I will sin, God responds by saying, I will save. And we know the depths of that saving mercy far greater than the nation of Israel could have known it because we have tasted and seen how Yahweh, the Lord, has brought full and final rescue from sin's guilt and condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? We've come to know, it's what uh, Steve read to us aloud after we confessed our sins earlier in the service. God shows his love for us. 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He said, in a couple, a couple of verses earlier than that, he said, while we were still weak, we were not pursuing him, trying our best, struggling. We were dead in sin. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And when we've come to embrace, when we've come to see and taste that kind of love that would love us in our sin, we cry out the words that we sang earlier, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? While an Assyrian king would say, I am powerful, I am mighty, I am this, I am exalted. The actual I am, Yahweh, I am who I am. He emptied himself and made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and humbling himself even to the point of death. And he did it for us. He did it for you. If you are here this morning trusting in Jesus and to taste that love, it, it just makes it, um, how can it be? And that, that posture, how can it be? That's the fear of the Lord that's being commended. When you hear fear of the Lord, do not hear a groveling, shrinking kind of fear. Yahweh is no tyrant, beloved. To fear the Lord is to have an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, how good and true God is, and therefore leans on him in staggered, trembling praise and adoration that cries out, amazing love, how can it be that you would die for me? And this, this experience of the love and the grace of Christ fuels in us a longing that we would use every thought. We're going to sing this later in the service. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. What a holy fear would arise of doing anything that would displease or dishonor one who has loved us so lavishly. That's the fear of the Lord. That's the love we are called to cultivate, and it is the spring and fountain of all wisdom. I've, I've, I've belabored this. That's not a good way of putting it. I hope I haven't just belabored telling you about the love of God. But I'm dwelling on this point inordinately in this sermon because this is the foundation of all wisdom. The, uh, one commentator put it this way, what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to music, what numbers are to mathematics, so this posture is, this fear of the Lord is to living wisely. If you're here this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus, why would you remain apathetic or hostile to such a good and great God? Oh, if you're here this morning and you, have, you are living for you, I just, would you just hear these words from wisdom to you in chapter 1, verse 20? Wisdom cries aloud in the street. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I'll make my words known to you. Chapter 8, wisdom says, whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Oh, if you're here this morning loving death, 
Turn to the Lord. Confess yourself as a sinner. Receive the grace of Christ by faith, and he will forgive all of your sins. He will eagerly forgive all of your sins. Is that not what we saw just in the book of Hosea? That the most miserable and wretched sinners, he has mercy on all who come to him. Oh, look to the Lord today. If you're with us and you've not, don't love death. Get sense, Proverbs 19.8 says. Get sense, get insight, and love your soul by trusting in the Lord Jesus. Kids, you can do this today too. You know, it says in Proverbs something, verse 3. Wow, I didn't write the chapter down. I think it's chapter 20, but I'm not sure. It's in the Proverbs, I promise. Kids, kids, kids. He who loves wisdom, and you can make this a she too, okay, but it, he who loves wisdom makes his father glad. Kids, I trust if you're here today, what would bring your dad and your mom the greatest joy imaginable is that you would give yourself to loving God and to loving the wisdom that comes from him. When we've come to experience that rich love of God in Christ, when that holy fear of the Lord is birthed in our hearts, and birth is the right word, that is the word that Jesus said, we must be born again. When it's birthed in our hearts, it does shape how we practice love towards others. And that's the third observation that I want us to consider from the book of Proverbs, the practice of love. We know that coming to know God's love changes the way we love others. We know that from the New Testament. John, the apostle, wrote, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, do you know how it ends? We also ought to love one another. Don't despise, beloved. Do not despise the oughts of the New Testament. They are driven by the love of Christ, always. But they are good. They are good. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And the book of Proverbs teaches us how to do that. Now, this is where I was starting to go a little crazy this week because it's not just about doing a word search for the word love. You can go into the whole book of Proverbs. Let me just give you one example. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. That has a lot to do with love. You start getting all your opinions and you know what's going on. You start speaking into things and you don't really understand what's been going on. That's a lack of love. We could just spend, <laughs> we could spend the whole week doing this from the book of Proverbs, thinking about what Proverbs tells us about our tongue or about money or about work. About so I would encourage you, just go into the book of Proverbs this week and put the love lens on and see how the book of Proverbs applies this, this wonderful love, how it applies that to all of life. 
that patient love and kind love and that love that doesn't envy or boast and is not arrogant or rude, that does not insist on its own way, that's not irritable or resentful, that love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth, that love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things. Go into the book of Proverbs and see all the ways that it instructs you about that love. I will just give you a couple of little verses that I think are particularly punchy. That's what the book of Proverbs is. It's, it's punchy. So let me just give you a couple of them. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I think that's one of the most important things that we can learn about love from the book of Proverbs. The practice of love is a, is a constant persevering, steady, around-the-clock kind of love. So many relationships in our day are transactional. When, when the relationship is no longer profitable for me, I walk away from that relationship. But real love is, is there at all times, through the good times, through the painful times when the other person has very little to give you. That kind of love is, is rare. Proverbs 26 says, many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Well, Jesus searches out and seeks for some people, and he makes some people who love like that. That's the love we've been given by Jesus. Right? What can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or... Distress or persecution or nakedness or danger or sword or famine? No, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Peter had proclaimed his steadfast love. You saw that in John's gospel, right? I'll never deny you. All the disciples, they were confessing the same. We'll never deny you. And then they all let him down. But Jesus did not despise them in their weakness and their infirmity, and he does not despise you in your weakness and infirmity. John Newton has a wonderful hymn. John Newton, we know, we know John Newton from Amazing Grace. He had a number of hymns. One of those hymns, he puts it like this. Could we bear from one another what he daily bears from us? Yet this glorious friend and brother loves us, though we treat him thus. Though for good we render ill, he accounts us brethren still. That's the love that we're called to love with. That's the love we receive from him. That's the love we're called to love with. That's friendship. Through thick and thin, when the chips are down, a true lover knows who you really are and does not walk away, even in the face of looking at your sin. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Love covers all offenses. So we disappoint our friends because we still are at war with sin. We don't, we don't want to do it, but we do. So there, there are offenses. And the wise person covers them with forgiveness. I was thinking about this too. It is not, if, if it says love covers all offenses, love covers a multitude of sins, we don't, we don't just cover sins, we just cover differences in preference too, don't we? Like I know standing here right now, 
Some of you are getting perplexed at the fact that this service is going to be ending at a particular time as you're eyeing things up. And some of you, others of you, I'll say, would be perplexed that anybody is even considering what time it is right now. And love covers that stuff. It covers sins and it covers all that other stuff because that's how God loved us. The Lord does not keep embarrassing us with our failures. Did you know that? He does not do that. Have you noticed when the Bible looks back on some people that you have read about who've served the Lord, when it looks back upon their lives, we know the truth about them, but it sounds like the Bible, as it reports back on their lives, has forgotten some things that we remember. Have you ever noticed that? Like Job. And James says, hey, consider the steadfast endurance of God's servant Job. And, and we kind of, I mean, I, like I, sometimes I'm thinking, like, he had some great moments, don't get me wrong. But like, what about the time when he cursed the day of his birth and told God to leave him alone so that he could find a little cheer? Consider the steadfastness of Job. Or that mighty pillar, Abraham, right, who hoped against hope that he believed without wavering. So what about the time he went into Hagar <laughs> or put forward his wife to another man because he was scared? See, we look back on the lives of those saints through the lens of the love of God. And God covers sins through Jesus. And that's what we get to do too. Because we want our sinning friend back more than we want payback, more than we want to be shown right or vindicated. We want our friend back. We want peace. We want love. We want reconciliation because that's the mind of Christ. God's love in Christ produces people who are eager to lavish love on those brothers and sisters who have also received that love. Beloved, Jesus forgave all our sins. Like, I know that's just such a, you know, those, they're just words. They shouldn't just be words. He forgave all our sins, all of them. Do you, can you get a number? Do you want to try to calculate a number? If you can say the number, you're not thinking clearly. He covered all of them. He forgave all of them. And now it's our happy duty to do the same in Jesus' name and for his glory. Here's a wonderful ministry. If you're wondering, I don't have a place in this church. I'm not sure what my role is in the church. I'm not sure what ministry I can have. Here's a ministry that Peter commends in 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all else, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Well, I know some of you are thinking about when we're moving to the table. <laughs> Loving others is not only about covering sin, it's also about correcting sin. I'll just give you the verses. I will stop my interpretation. This is how God loves. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And so Proverbs instructs us, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Literally, faithful are the wounds of one who loves. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's not an 
It's not unleashing reckless, you know, mouthing off and self-appointed critics who think you need to hear all their opinions about everything all the time. But it is saying that part of genuine love is a love that provokes you and challenges you to become more like Christ. You cannot become wise without Christian brothers and sisters speaking into your life. It might be painful, but the wounds of an honest friend are faithful to help you grow in the wisdom that pleases God. I have a lot more to say, but we'll just go to the fourth observation. And it's very brief, and it really takes us to the table. It's the power for love. I, I've talked about it already. I've been talking about Jesus, haven't I? Such was the love of Christ to us that he did as it were. This is a quote from Jonathan Edwards. Such was the love of Christ to us that he did as it were spend himself for our sake. His love did not rest in mere feeling nor in light effort and small sacrifices. But though we were enemies... Yet he so loved us that he had a heart to deny himself and undertake the greatest efforts and undergo the greatest sufferings for our sake. He gave up his own ease and comfort and interest and honor and wealth and became poor and outcast and despised and had nowhere to lay his head and all for us. That's what we remember at the table. And we need to remember it at the table. We need to remember it because we, we fall so short. I, I've been reading through the Proverbs every month, right? Some of you do this too. It's today's uh, July 4th. No, today's July 3rd. What's today? Today's July 3rd. I let the cat out of the bag that I haven't gotten to my Proverbs reading yet. But it's my practice to read through the Proverbs every month. So on the third of the month, I read chapter three. I've been doing that for about four years. I'm just getting through the book of Proverbs every month. Most of the time, full disclosure. And I'll tell you what's what can be tormenting. It, it would be tormenting without that, without what that symbolizes. I read through the book of Proverbs, and it's the same verses every month that just stab me. Words about a fool venting his spirit. Words about humility, words about slothfulness. Every month is the same words. And that's why we need that. Proverbs 3.3, 3, let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck Write them on the tablet of your heart. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Now, do you know how that happens, beloved? God said something else in the Old Testament about writing the law on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the covenant 
that Jesus secured for his people when he willingly forsook the pleasures of eternal Trinitarian bliss and came in human flesh so that his body could be broken and his blood poured out for rebellious spiritual adulterers who keep on stumbling and stumbling and stumbling. Here, here in Jesus, we see a brother who has truly been born for adversity. Like that was literally what he was born for. He came, he, he took on flesh and blood for the adversity of bearing the wrath of God for your sins and for mine. Here is a friend who loves at all times. He loved us in life. He loved us in death. He loves us still at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. In Jesus Christ, there's full pardon from the penalty of our sin, and there's transforming power. He's going to write his law in our hearts. He's going to put his spirit within us that we might begin to walk in his statutes, that we might begin to love in the way that he loves. While at the same time, not wallowing in guilt and condemnation when we see our sin, because the spirit reminds us that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Oh, we must, we must run to the table. We study God's wisdom. We're pierced by it. And we remember in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So let's pray and then we'll eat and drink. Love you. Almost forgot to say that. Love you, brothers and sisters. Father, we, we ask for your help now as we come to the table. We want to grow in love. We want to love like we are loved. And so we pray that you would use the bread and the cup to remind us of the rich love you've shown us, that we might glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.